I'm James from Ono Type Co. This is Ono Radio. Okay, today's guest was the global design director at Nike. And when I say that, I honestly feel kind of bad for him because it's one of those things that you can't really say without it sounding like a flex. It's like having gone to Yale or something, which he also did. Anyhow, that's really the beginning of the story, not the end. In this interview, I learned some surprising things too, like how he had multiple blunders in type design classes over the years and multiple attempts to attend Type at Cooper, the year-long type design program in New York, which he finally made it to this year. But again, that's just the beginning of the story. What I really wanted to focus our conversation on was a small piece of writing Eric put out in May entitled Towards a Decentralized Autonomous Type Foundry. In it, he raises some really interesting thoughts and questions about what effect blockchain and cryptocurrency technologies might have on the type business. Specifically, he seems interested about how it could make it better in a lot of cool ways. Obviously, this stuff is super technical and it can be kind of confusing, but luckily Eric came armed with a barrage of metaphors to illustrate these ideas for the layperson, which is me in this case. So anyways, I hope you enjoy this interview with Eric Hu. It's cool. Um, yeah, I, I've been wanting to to meet and just like talk with you for a minute. Um, you know, I, I've like been I've been familiar with your work for like a couple years now. I used to rent a desk um, with from Lucas Sharp at his old studio. Oh, no way. And like, I think you were at you were at KBK at the time. You were still in grad school and he like showed me your work. And I was like, there's something that's like such a nice like old school bay area feel to this but this is obviously <laughs> going through like you know like the north kind of mafia like <laughs> like system and it was like it was like oh cool i've never seen like these two worlds like collide in such a nice way wow thanks man that's that's high praise i appreciate it a lot and um it's not often that you kind of get um the perspective on on uh that specific type of compliment you know like uh to to know really intimately what nord's eye means and what the bay area type scene means in in whatever kind of era you're looking at it um that's really cool it's not super conscious um but i think all that stuff just kind of happens but that's why I think your talk at Typographics last year, I guess, um, really resonated with me a lot because I think we share so much in common in just like our kind of visual language that we grew up with, you know, and and so yeah. the the strip mall vinyl lettering and uh, kind of you know L.A. stuff was completely different, but I really related to hearing you talk about how you were feeling very far removed from like cool cultures or, or whatever that meant. So that was in Monterey Park in LA, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like it's it's ten minutes from downtown. Um and LA is just kind of just a collection of small suburbs. But so it, it's really weird thinking like, oh I'm from the suburbs, but then just like realizing like that's pretty much just like all of LA. Mm-hmm. Um and everybody had that same feeling like at the end of the day, it was still like a large kind of city, but it just felt like a small town in that way. And I think in high school, like it was everyone's dream to just move to San Francisco because uh-huh. to us, that's where like the cool art was. Uh-huh. That's where the cool graffiti was. Like Oakland was like where the cool music was. And like we had dreams of like like the East Bay. Like like one of my <laughs> best friends is from Albany, California, uh-huh. which is like next to Berkeley and Oakland. And I was like, 
what was it like to go to high school with these like rappers like Lil B and, <laughs> and, and stuff and it, yeah he he was it was just it just felt mythical you know was and that, it, was it's that funny real? now knowing did he really go to high school with Lil B and stuff or, or yeah was, they're in the same grade oh how funny yeah they're in the same grade it was really it was really interesting and um yeah, like San Francisco, like if you're interested in graffiti, like San Francisco just has that amazing kind of history. Sure. And like um, it so it, it was just sort of this like kind of mythical thing. And the, the thing like going to art school in California, like it was like, oh, we're going to graduate. And we're going to go to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And then totally not not realizing like what maybe like Facebook and Airbnb and that whole kind of it was like totally before that time. Right. And like it feels almost like too easy to kind of pick on the tech scene. Oh, saying it's changed the Bay area, but it, it kind of has, mm-hmm. you know, it's very, it's very different, but there's still obviously very beautiful things. And like, it's still like, like the Bay area is still like one of the most beautiful places on earth. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I get why maybe the richest people in the world want to have an office here. <laughs> um, yeah. No, know, like, I, I get it. <laughs> driving around San Francisco and seeing different views and stuff. It's like, okay, yeah. this, this, is extremely highly rated um but is it overrated is kind of the question and i don't i don't know if it's really overrated but uh the the tech thing coming in has been a huge bummer in a lot of ways particularly around like issues of homelessness and stuff like that but um if we're still talking about graffiti you know that's uh, still super vibrant and there's been interesting yeah. stuff that's done, you know, directly in kind of opposition to what's happening to the city, which is kind of fun to look at. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I want to ask you how school is going. You're going to type it Cooper right now, right? Yeah. I, I've been wanting to go to type it Cooper for a long time now. I've had this like kind of funny journey, like, being obsessed with and being afraid of type design like i think so I think many for the last people, like 15 years i think so many people relate to that like it's kind of intimidating yeah i mean so i you know i grew up like really obsessed with like graffiti and really obsessed with like lettering and it, it was like when i was a teenager i was like i want to work in typography like that was a thing and when i went to art center out in pasadena um where one of your you know, one of your uh, guests, Angie, yeah. went there. Um, yeah, it. I when I when I got to Art Center in Pasadena, it was it, it was really funny because like I I knew that some of the students there were secretly in some of like the most famous like graffiti crews like in the world, uh-huh. um, and they and they were all students there. Like some of like some of the crews that I, I like really idolized and everything, um, and you know I, I get there and. I think most of my peers were in the graphic design program. Like they, I think they liked art and they liked computers, but you know, typography was still kind of a new thing for them. Mm-hmm. And art center is funny cause it's, it's very like at the time it was very old school. Like we had like typography teachers that were like trained um, in Basel in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, they studied under Adrian Frutiger mm-hmm. and stuff. And so the introductory type class um, the way the school was set up was that they, the first semester of type, they teach you about letters. And then the second semester, you're taught how to like typeset sentences. And then the third, you're taught how to do paragraphs. So it's like yeah. going from 
the atomic to kind of the large and I think when you start learning typography in a graphic design program, a lot of people learn it the other way around where right. it's like, oh, you work with layouts and then you get interested into type design at some point. Yeah. So the first semester of the assignment, we had to learn font design. We, um, you know, knowing no type knowledge at all, like you, we had to, we also had to paint letters too. We had to paint like 10 point Garamond <laughs> with a little paintbrush and placa um you know i had a professor rest in peace that sounds so cruel (laughs) dude it was it was crazy yeah we had to we had to like learn to recognize typefaces we had to paint it in placa and placa is this like notoriously difficult paint but (laughs) the power of it is is that it's it's pure black it's like the blackest black Uh but it's literally like putty when you open it from a jar um and no matter how much you dilute it with water it's notoriously difficult to paint with but that's how they did it in Switzerland in the 50s. So <laughs> that was kind of the instructions we got. And I think I was the last semester that got that before they said, uh, never mind, we're just going to do computers. Um, <laughs> but you basically spent, um, you know, font designers, like like one of the basic kind of tenets is like the Hamburger font sieve where you draw like H-A-M-B-U-R-G because right. they kind of, they kind of give you clues on the rest of the typeface. Yeah. yeah. And so we we did that. And what happened was, um, I, th- I think I, I think I like went to the restroom where, um, where she explained, um, how to digitize fonts. Mm-hmm. I think she, I, she, my teacher, Leah Hoffman's amazing teacher. She, she passed away, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. she was giving a demo after we painted them, like how to digitize type and how to draw like curves and things in font lab. Mm-hmm. And where she was saying like, you know, you have to plot extremas and, mm-hmm. you know, your handles have to be 90 degrees. I think I was in the restroom because I just like had some gnarly lunch and I came back and I just missed the whole thing. And for the rest of the semester, I was like, dude, this is so hard. Like, this is like harder than Illustrator. Like, what, what the, you know, like, what am I doing? And I was like, why does everyone's letters look so good? And, you know, I had like, I had like maybe like 10 points on a single curve, Uh um, you know, going all different kind of directions. And I was like, it looks so bumpy. And. I thought literally I had to like every time like the angle changed, I had to plot down a point. Um, and so it came, and nobody explained it to me. And then when it came to the final, I was like, all right, I think this I think I got it the best I could. And so we had to do an old style serif, mm-hmm. um, a sans serif and um, an expansion model serif, basically mm-hmm. in Hamburger Fonsiv. Mm-hmm. Like we had to paint them, we had to digitize them and we presented it. And I was like really proud of what I did. And she was like, yeah, uh, you, you went a long way, Eric. Um, you know, I have to say, I'm like really proud of you. Mm-hmm. And then it was time to get our grades and I got a D minus. No and, and I was like, I'm never touching fonts ever. Like I'm never going to design a font ever again. So what was the thing that happened there? You just like really missed the boat on vectorizing. And that was, yeah. <laughs> I, that's like in retrospect when i talked to the teacher and i when i looked back like it was like oh because <laughs> i i later on went to grad school and we also had to take a required type class um with surprise fair jones uh-huh. and so i was really afraid i was like i had like ptsd i was like it was like the one <laughs> class that i did really horrible in in art school and I think that class gave me the kind of narrative. I was like, I'm good at graphic design, except that part. Wow. So anything when it came to a pen tool and illustrator, 
I just try to get away with. I was like, you know, I'm going to draw a box and I'm just going to cut this box until it looks good. Uh-huh. I'm going to add some circles together yeah. and just combine them with the Pathfinder tool. And, you know, Tobias just explained how to use a pen tool. And like, it was the most like emotional thing for me because I felt like, wow, I was like, by then I had been in school for like five years. Right. And I was like, I went through all that anguish for nothing. And I, I was like, this makes total sense. Like when he explained how yeah. to actually draw curves and stuff, I was like, oh, this is sick. It is, like, it is anguish though. It, and it is yeah. just, there's no way of getting around, I think the pain of it, uh, of just kind of yeah. like banging your head against the wall, trying to get the computer to do the thing that your eyes think kind of needs to happen. Yeah. Um, and there's so many things like that in school where you kind of get the lesson, but it doesn't really sink in until semester later, years later, a lot of times. Like, I'm still kind of thinking back on classroom assignments from my undergrad and grad school and just thinking like, oh, that's what they were kind of trying to tell us. Yeah. And it just takes forever to uh, to click finally. But then it does. And the thing was, though, it was like, you know, I was... We were doing a revival. We, we, I was redrawing um, Style by Rudolf Ka. Mm-hmm. And um, and Tobias was like, wow, this is really good. And like he had Matthew Carter take a look at it, and he was like, oh, this is awesome. And I, I like added some new features, but it kind of, it was still like calligraphic. Uh-huh. So, you know, the, everything kind of lined up, and they were like, oh, you figured that out. This is really cool. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it felt like all this like kind of graffiti kind of obsession kind of came back, you right. know, and it felt like, you know, it felt not that different from dealing with a felt tip marker. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really stoked. And so the final presentation, we had to put together a specimen and we presented the specimen. And for some reason, um, you know, the grad school I went to, like Yale, it's like a very conceptual kind of graphic design program. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of notorious for like doing kind of like zany and wacky stuff. Mm-hmm. And so when I was putting together the specimen, I think it was that part where I was like, oh, I got to make it like cool graphic design. I, I got to Yale so, this right here. Yeah. Yeah. So what I did was that I like tracked all the words in or I tracked <laughs> all the words out. And then I was like, I'm just going to flip it, you know? And then, so I, I, all the paragraphs I typeset, I was like, I'm just going to track the letter spacing really tight and make the, <laughs> and so when I presented it, Tobias and Matthew were like, Hey dude, what happened? <laughs> like, seriously, like what happened? Um, like, what did you do with this? <laughs> You're like, well, I'm at Yale right now, so I thought... <laughs> yeah. And then I had the Yale idea of like, oh, you know what? I'm going to make the punctuation look like I drew it with my left hand instead. And then the letters and numbers, you know, like it, like in retrospect, those ideas, it sounds so silly in retrospect, but I was like, yo, I'm going to make this like, I'm going to make this conceptual. Yeah. And then, um, and so I just totally bombed like that final and they're like this was going so good. And it was like, it's like, you know, when you get a haircut and that your hair looks best five minutes before the haircut ends and you're like, please don't mess this up. And then somehow between like the last five minutes of your haircut and the end, they did something that just kind of took the magic out. (laughs) It's so rare that that happens as a teacher. Like we do everything that we possibly can to ensure the kind of security in that final step there. So to tell 
stories about these two type classes where things just went horribly wrong at various yeah. points in the semester. It's so unusual for me to hear. It, it, you know, it, and so that part, I was just like, all right, I'm done. Like, um, never again. And then, <laughs> like, and then it wasn't until, um, you know, I, I befriended this guy, Burton Hasabi, yeah. um, in New York. He, he's made some amazing typefaces. One of the best dudes. Yeah. I, f- I discovered this typeface. I came across this typeface by Jan von Krippen called Lutetia. Mm-hmm. And it made me like super emotional. I was like, yo, this is like the most beautiful thing I've seen. Sure. And then he was like, you know, actually, I, I've been working on a revival for the last 10 years. And it started as a project when, I, when he was at the KBK. Mm-hmm. And um, he showed it to me. And then we just started talking. And, and through that, he kind of taught me like Nordzeit's theories and stuff and mm-hmm. translation and all these things. And it got me really fired up. And I was like, dude, I, I, I think I want to get another swing. And I think enough years had passed where I realized like, all right, the first time I missed how to do Bezier curves, and then the second time I was like, okay, I totally missed the part where spacing is more important than drawing. <laughs> um, and so maybe the third time's a charm. And um, I applied to type at Cooper and I got in, but I didn't have the money for the tuition. Uh-huh. Um, I, you know, like I, I was doing pretty well freelancing, but I was just really bad at money. Mm-hmm. And I ended up not going. And then I left New York at the time mm-hmm. and I, I moved to Montreal for a job and I took that job specifically because I could no longer, I like, I could no longer freelance on my own and I needed to take a full-time job. And that was like one of the most painful things. Cause I was like, Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not go to Taipei Cooper. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking about it ever since, ever since. And, you know, I ended up moving to Portland and I still thought about it. Mm-hmm. And when I finally quit my job in Portland, I was like, I'm going to move back to Taipei. I'm going to move back to New York and I'm going to take type at Cooper. Yeah. Um, and then the pandemic happened. And so f- I think that kind of m- made it seem kind of weird for a while. But then when they finally announced that, oh, it's still happening and they're going to do it online. I was like, I'm going to do it. And so this is a really long winded story, but it's like, <laughs> this was basically like, it, it's me over, since 2007 until now, like really trying to be like, I want to learn this the right way because you know, letters are the thing I love most about graphic design. And it's always felt silly to, you know, do to like be obsessed with arranging letters and like being obsessed with how letters are drawn, but never trying to do it yourself. Right. And, you know, school has been really amazing. It's, it seems like really different from type West. Um, it's, it, it's pretty strict, um, you know, like the, the type of project we have to do is like a text face mm-hmm. and it has to be translation. And, you know, there's a lot of different variables, but it's really good. Um, and, you know, it's like I think it's, it's, it's really good about time that I try to learn how to make a paragraph face. But I, I've learned I've learned so much in the program and I'm and the, my classmates are really amazing. Well, and um, I'm really, yeah, it's been super sick. I'm really blown away by I mean. You're really great at downplaying these things like, oh, I moved to Montreal and oh, I moved to Portland. But like during that time, you know, you have these like crazy career moves. It's like one in a million job opportunities to, you know, work at Nike in this uh, insane position. Um, so I thought it was a really cool kind of egoless move to come back to school in that situation. But then you go to these programs and 
that's probably half the students there are all like vicious designers just doing awesome stuff at at various places and that just kind of have yeah no you got people from pentagram like who are in the class and stuff too you got you got people who are just like really like hitters totally yeah and same thing on the on the west coast at at type west um it's just you know uh kind of the the tech companies that you might expect but like the best designers that are there are are spending their free time learning about making fonts and it's just so cool to see that shift as someone who's taught in kind of that program and also teaching an elective program in a undergrad or uh, mfa thing where the students kind of have to take it you know they have to take something and they think oh type design you know what's that going to be it might be a easy a kind of class and then they get in and realize it's really really hard and it's super involved and stuff and um versus people just taking it all on their own accord is just such a a beautiful thing and has led to some really cool teaching experiences for me but um yeah, I just got to give you props for like kind of coming back to education after all that. So was that like a a difficult thing to kind of ditch your ego in that way? Um, it, it's funny because it's like, yeah, I mean, like not going to type at Cooper. Um, I think like I don't have a lot of regrets in my careers, as you said, like I've like my I have a career that I never imagined. Mm-hmm. Like I, I honestly, when I first started doing it. It was because I was making like message board signatures, mm-hmm. like when I was like 13, and like for like getting paid any amount <laughs> has like blown my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it it was just like, yeah, I'm probably gonna like work, like I'm probably gonna like make like make some skate decks, I guess. You know, like that was gonna be my career uh-huh. or something. And and so it, it's led me to like a really amazing place. And but if I did have any regrets, it was just like, you know. I think like I like I just love like letter forms and and I I think I didn't speak to that part of me. I think I spoke to the part of me where I was like, okay, I'm good at these other things, so I'm going to do these other things. And I and because for whatever reason, you know, I'm the kind of person where if I don't feel like I'm an expert at something when I start a new hobby, like I don't want to learn. I I, I can't stand the idea of being uncomfortable. It comes really (laughs) unnatural to me. And so this was, this always felt like the final frontier, um, you know, type design. And it's really funny, like, yeah, it's like, I thought like, okay, you know, if I, if I just kept doing it since I took Tobias's class, or if I even had gotten in like five years ago, where would I be now? Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where, you know, it's hard to look back, but so there wasn't that. What I was maybe kind of worried about was like, you know, it was really weird because like I spoke at typographics, like. And then I'm about to take a class in the same institution and stuff. And so it, it it wasn't really an ego thing, but I was maybe worried at like, okay, maybe like it's a little bit distracting. Um, you know, I, I, it feels so weird to say, what do you, or what self, do you mean? Maybe self-centered. What do you mean distracting? Like, I think part of me was just like, yeah, I, I don't know who my classmates are going to be, but is it, is it really weird that like, I'm like an extremely online person. Oh yeah, um, yeah. You didn't want to look like uh, the hot shot, you know, a lister graphic design yeah. uh, guy coming in uh, and uh, feeling like you were better than anyone else in the class. Like you were just coming in there to learn. But honestly, I, you know, I, yeah, and I, and I also just thought like, 
you know, it's, it's still something that is doesn't come naturally for me. Like there's I, there's a lot of my classmates that are way better than me. And so there's also maybe just like, again, that insecurity where it's like, yeah, I I've had a very secure career where, you know, I'm used to receiving more praise and crit- criticism. And I was wondering, like, maybe I'm just going to be too fragile to kind of deal with that. Mm-hmm. And so I did. Part of me had to be like, OK, Eric, you're a grown adult. You're a grown man. <laughs> like this is what this is what causes you to grow. Mm-hmm. And. But then I also had this fantasy, like, you know, I'm just going to be low key, you know, type design and graphic design are kind of different worlds. Um, You know, maybe like maybe I'm a nobody. Mm -hmm. And I think like the first class um, we were on Zoom and then my cat hopped on my lap Mm -hmm. and then a couple classmates said, oh, that's Gyoza. (laughs) And we hadn't introduced ourselves. And I was like, oh, fuck, if they know the name of my cat, like, you know, Uh, um, it's funny. Like, yeah, maybe maybe a couple people know who I am, I guess. And then so I I was I was kind of nervous about that. But, you know, it's been really cool. Like I and again, like there's so many like amazing classmates and hitters that have their own amazing careers, too. And it's just like, yeah, of course. And the thing is, we're all struggling. Mm -hmm. We're we're all stressed out. Like, you know, there's six more weeks in class and we're all behind. And and this is just kind of proves that type design isn't a walk in the park. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's hard even for people who have careers in this thing. You're in term three, you're six weeks away from like the final final. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you're, you're working on your original translation based text space right now. Right. Yeah. It was, it was kind of funny. Cause like my original plan was like, I was going to save up enough money um, from working at Nike that I could quit and then i could go to new york and take a full year off of not working mm-hmm. and just live off savings mm-hmm. and i was going to enroll in both type west and type at cooper <laughs> at the same time and not try to tell people and just and just like be that full time and then um i i asked kel if that was a good idea yeah, from type kel west Trafford. and he was like just yeah he was just like just do one dude yeah like <laughs> it's probably he was like yeah maybe like probably good advice. maybe not the best like he's like I don't know what you're going to get out of that. And, and so it's funny. And it, it, it's kind of glad I did. Cause like, you know, the pandemic happened. So suddenly it was like, Oh, okay. okay like um, financial security is not a thing. Like I, I, I have to take on clients. I have to work. I have to, you know, and it was really scary at first and stuff too. It was like, you know, like work, like I, this is why I have this like crazy, you know, I've been thinking about getting this like podcast microphone for a while. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, I think when we were in the thick of the pandemic, I was like, man, I, the clients are not coming. I was like, maybe I should start a podcast or <laughs> teach an online course or something. I was like, I, I need like a side hustle because I, I was starting to sweat. Um, but no, it, it's like, yeah, it, it's been a, it's been a really cool kind of programming experience and stuff. It's a, and it's a lot. I think though. it's even, even for people that, so the, the program for people that don't know, it's designed to kind of supplement a career you know it's like night classes and you're supposed to work at night and on the weekends but from everyone i know um who's taking it and and we we teach a very similar kind of program at type west um it ends up being really consuming especially towards the end and to think about you know how people's jobs or relationships or, or whatever else they have going on in their lives can suffer um it's pretty brutal actually so yeah thinking about doing both at the same time seems like the most insane idea i've ever heard you're the only one i've ever heard of having that idea in the first place 
But if you can swing it and uh, either dial back your freelance work or your job while you attend school, I think that's probably the healthiest thing. And if it can be kind of dynamic in that way where it um, ebbs and flows with how much your school workload is, like that can be really cool too. So do you notice kind of that happening uh, now that we're kind of approaching the end of the semester? Like, are you dialing back your normal freelance stuff? I think you have to. I think like basically like the last month before every term has ended, I've had to tell clients like, yo, I got to wrap this up because (laughs) um, I think the first semester when it was ending, that's like I had gone like months without working. Um, And towards the end of the year, that's when clients started happening because New York was bouncing back. And so I think, you know, when you don't have like that financial security, you start saying yes a little bit too much. So I was like, so I had like type at Cooper, um, this ad agency thought I was like working for them, like at a day rate and had like four other projects on the side. And, you know, financially it was worth it in the end, I guess, like it, it, it definitely helped, you know, me in that situation. But like, I never wanted to do that again. I was like so burnt out. So I think the second semester I... I took a month off from clients and, and I really dialed in and I'm really glad. And just even without clients, like just type at Cooper is just like a lot of work. Totally. Um, and so it, you know, and type West is the same thing too. Cause I have friends that are in that program right now. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, it, it's, it's really, you know, type design is just really hard. And it's one of these things where I don't want to speak for my whole class, but I get the sense that like, now that we have like learned about it for a year, I think all of us feel like we know, less than when we oh, started it's in, in, a, in a weird way it's the beauty of uh i think any good educational experience you know you you kind of immediately are confronted with to what degree you're an amateur or or how little you know and it's i think it's the most beautiful thing in the world really that's like the the thing we um kind of strive for always um so you've been working as a graphic designer, intimately involved, creating your own type and doing your own lettering and stuff. And you're also kind of getting an awareness of what the type industry is and just like how much money kind of flows through it, um, like on a daily basis. So recently you wrote this article called Towards a Decentralized Type Foundry that's kind of about um, what does the combination of... Uh, cryptocurrency blockchain technology have on uh, the type business or uh, an example of a type foundry and i was really interested reading this to be honest i'm kind of a cryptocurrency skeptic like i'm not super on board with it myself and i don't have any uh money uh in it but i started to get really interested with a couple of points that you were bringing up where i was like okay, this aspect of it could actually be really cool. And that could, you know, make a foundry really, really interesting. Um, particularly things you said uh, about allowing more fairness and et- equitable inclusion for emerging type designers, um, allow for more uh, ways to do a split between the designer and the foundry, um, this idea of splits, I think, is super interesting. Um, you kind of talk about just like 
kind of giving a, a tiny percentage to someone that helped out in some small way. It could be as small as like a conversation you had in an elevator mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Um, and also protecting the integrity of the industry from bad faith actors and monopolizing forces. So I think the article kind of assumes some things like cryptocurrency is kind of viable. It has to be stable enough to um, facilitate all this. And you're also kind of, it seems less than satisfied with the single current offering in this space, which is font.community. And yeah, I think I, I kind of share that um, point of view. It was dark, man. See, that website's dark. It was the, really the most depressing website. Like, it, it felt worse than Dafont in so many ways. <laughs> yeah. What did, it, what did it kind of make you feel? It requires a lot of kind of, like i think to i think to maybe like um a casual listener and someone that's like out of the crypto space i think what i'm about to say is probably just maybe like half the words will sound like intelligible but um you know basically like just to get a little bit of a backstory is that like i i was super you know crypto skeptical like i thought you know i thought it was definitely like a ponzi scheme and a scam you know there are a lot of environmental stuff i was reading about that i wasn't like really happy with mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you see stuff on the news in Bitcoin and, and now this year with like NFTs being a thing, I think from an outsider, you know, seeing the price tags of, of digital artwork just being sold in the millions, like it it really kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but what I, I think the more and more I studied it, I realized they were just like really interesting kind of Lego pieces, Mm -hmm. um, that were coming together. And, and I think what I think now is that like, I think not all cryptocurrency is equal. Um, there's different types of cryptocurrencies and there's different, t- and I think like blockchain technology is one of those things where it's an amplifier. Like if you're a libertarian, like capitalist, blockchain technology will let you be the most libertarian capitalist you could be. Mm-hmm. But what I realized the more I read into it is that if you believe in inclusion, if you believe in, you know, equal value, if you believe in, you know, like socialist like kind of ideas where, you know, people, we should help each other Mm -hmm. and things like that. There's parts of blockchain that allow you to be an even better socialist. Mm -hmm. There's parts of blockchain that allow you to be even more fair. And, um, you know, font.community is basically like, it's a font marketplace, sort of like the font or my fonts, but it basically lets you turn your font into an NFT. And so somebody, for example, could buy your font as an NFT and they would take it off the market basically. Mm-hmm. And that person just kind of owns a font. And that represented to me kind of everything wrong with NFTs and technologies, because I think the part about an NFT is that it introduces like scarcity. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the prices that they were charging for, like it was like a thousand dollars. And the idea that you would work on a font for five years and sell it for a thousand dollars, like just felt so kind of cruel. And it was just like, it just felt like that's like nego- if you if that was you and you designed that you were negotiating against yourself yeah. in in a big way and so it, it didn't make me happy and it was also just like the most uninteresting use of it mm-hmm. um, and this is what kind of attracted me um, I think to blockchain technology which was you know I think first like when you at when you wonder like like what's there's a couple of things um, with with blockchain technology. I think one, a lot of people just 
kind of don't know what that is. Um, I think basically when you think about the internet, the internet is a combination of free protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, that is like things that are open to everybody. Like email is a free protocol. Like it, like, you know, Gmail could talk to Hotmail, Hotmail could talk to Yahoo mm-hmm. and you know, not one company owns Gmail, but more and more as the internet progressed, um, as social media became a bigger thing, companies started consolidating um, around things where now it's like, you know, if you have Gmail, anybody could use email, but you're really kind of tied to Google. Mm-hmm. You know, your calendar is linked to Google. A lot of your services are it. And if you don't like Google, you know, and you would take your email elsewhere, it's really difficult to take all your stuff with mm-hmm. you. If you don't like Instagram, one, there's hardly another competitor, but two, you kind of have to start over it. Right. Um, you don't really get to take it with you, mm-hmm. right? And so this was kind of being a big thing. And the thing about it is because companies own kind of servers where all your data is stored. And, you know, a decade ago, a couple of people had this idea, which was like, instead of a single company opening a server, what if like computers all around the world hosted this data instead, where not a single entity and it spreads it around and not a single entity could take it down. Mm -hmm. And this thing called blockchain arise where in a way it's like a Google, you know, spreadsheet, you know, it's like a public spreadsheet that everybody could see and have access to. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And anybody could add a row to that spreadsheet. And when you add a row, a bunch of computers all over the world verify like, okay, an actual person did this and this is what the actual person did. And once you add it, you can't, nobody else could edit it. And if you want to change the data about the row, you add another row that says, hey, I changed this thing or hey, I want to delete this, etc." It sounds like a simple idea, but once you did that where it's like, oh, it's public, the data is public, nobody really owns it, um, powerful things started happening. And the, but you know, when you think of a spreadsheet, what is like the most obvious thing to do with it? It's money. So I think some of the first applications of it were like Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But then a few years ago, this thing called Ethereum came along and it was kind of taking some ideas farther. We're like, we're going to build a public internet um, and we're going to spread it across the world. Um, you know, anybody with a laptop could be a part of this network. It's sort of like similar to how BitTorrent or torrenting kind of works mm-hmm. where, you know, a file split all over the world. And you're downloading a file from multiple people, you know, so that if one computer goes down, it doesn't matter because there's 50 other computers. Mm-hmm. And so they took that. And the big part of, you know, the Internet is like, how do you how do people make money? Right. And this is a difficult thing about the Internet. Well, they found out, you know, the founder, I mean, the creator of the Ethereum network, Vitalik Buterin, was like, you know, when you allow your computer to to build, be a part of this network, you know, we'll give you these tokens, um, these pieces of data that's added to the blockchain. And these tokens basically give you access to, you know, VIP access to the network. So it gives you kind of this incentive. And that ended up being a new kind of cryptocurrency because that network started having value, mm-hmm. right? And the difference between this and Bitcoin is that there's this thing called smart contracts. And smart contracts means, I think it's like programmable money. So it's not just like money like Bitcoin is. It's basically money... Um, with rules and stipulations that you can write that basically a smart contract is exactly what it sounds like. It's a contract where you don't need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a contract with rules that execute automatically um, from AI. And that became this powerful idea where, you know, 
to to kind of give an example, it's like one of the first uses of smart contracts that really caught my eye was this guy, John Palmer. Um, he wanted to write this essay, um, but he was really busy with this freelance work, but he wanted to write this essay that was really important to him called Scissor Labels. Mm-hmm. And so he uses this service called Mirror. Uh, and Mirror is like medium.com or any kind of writing kind of service, but it's kind of built naturally into the NFT kind of space. And Mirror has this interesting feature called a, like crowdfunding, which is like Kickstarter. And so he started this Kickstarter and it was like, look, my request is simple. I need to take time off um, client work to write this essay. Can you please, you know, pay for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was taking payments in Ethereum kind of cryptocurrency, right? And so, you know, it's just like, why not use GoFundMe? Why not use Kickstarter? Because there's smart contracts now with Ethereum, he basically said that when the essay is done, I will list it as an NFT and everybody that sent money to me is going to get a percentage of that, Mm -hmm. of the sales. And to me, that kind of unlocked this thing where it was just like, this is actually kind of bigger than crowdfunding. This is actually like having people like share in, you know, the upside. This is crowdfunding with actually a bigger incentive. Mm -hmm. It's like if, it's like if buying a font off of future fonts to support a designer to work on it allowed you like future, um, like sales and like font royalties. And that kind of became this huge idea. And the thing about, you know, a blockchain with all the data being public is that you could actually like smart contracts interact with each other. Um, And different smart contracts can talk to each other where it was like, okay, if I'm a graphic designer um, and I made a poster and I use this, you know, and I use this font that, was also kind of linked into that same ecosystem, I would say like, okay, if you buy this poster as an NFT, um, a portion of it will go towards like the, the font designer that made it. And it's, so it's basically two separate smart contracts talking to each other. And so that ended up just being kind of interesting and and made me just like really rethink um, it. Um, I think what was really difficult though, is that when people think like kind of NFTs, like for one, it's, it's really loaded. Um, I think, you know, you're, it's there there is definitely like douche chills that any that people normally get when they kind of when they kind of hear about these things right and um you know i don't blame it because it's it's really kind of a weird space you're seeing like really weird awful art most of the time getting sold for millions and millions of dollars and you know it's sort of like the early days of the internet where you know porn and gambling was all that it Mm -hmm. was and i think for most people, when they first came across the internet in the mid-90s, they were like, this is a toy. And I think if there's anything that's taught us about the last 20 years is that most like paradigm-shifting technological changes often start out with really dumb toys. Yeah. Um, and they kind of build further. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, I, I hated on the art for a while, but then I realized that when I open up Adobe Illustrator, the default font is Myriad, and I'm not the biggest fan of Myriad. Mm-hmm. And imagine that's all it took to just make me go, I'm never going to be a designer because I hate the <laughs> default you know, font that it kind of came with. And um, I think it kind of got me around to it. And so what's really interesting, though, on top of that is, um, you know, I started really thinking and I started really kind of researching. And there's a couple cool things in that space also on top of like smart contracts is the idea of a, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. Right. 
Um, and a, and a DAO is basically imagine like a subreddit with a wallet, with a bank account, uh-huh. or imagine like a, a group chat that's able to pull money together because of, without getting too technical, because of the way, um, you know, one of the advantages of like Ethereum and other kind of cryptocurrencies is that it's not centralized. And what I mean by centralized is that like, you know, banks in America are subject to the laws of the American government where to go to a bank, you have to kind of play by their rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, thing there's, when you think about it, so much of our lives are kind of at the mercy of these centralized services. Mm-hmm. Like your credit score isn't like an official thing. Like credit scores are kind of a scam. Mm-hmm. Like three companies own a credit score, totally. a FICO score, totally. but that has so much bearings on your life. Right. And one of the, you know, say what you, there's a lot of critiques to be said about, you know, cryptocurrency, but it's a lot of people who couldn't get a bank account, who couldn't get a loan, who couldn't, you know, have access to capital, um, be able to just kind of do it frictionlessly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think the same thing is about starting a company, you know, to start a company in America, to have an LLC, and you probably went through this yourself when you started your foundry, yeah. there's actually a lot of things you have to do to just say like, hey, I want to officially legitly make things and I want to make money off mm-hmm. of it. And because of, you know, all these things aren't centralized, it's basically a DAO lets a bunch of people kind of come together um, and, you know, pull funds together. And because all the funds and stuff are tied to smart contracts and it's all traceable, it's not like you're giving money to a guy and then just kind of crossing your fingers that they're going to do it. You know, the thing about um, a lot of things like in business is that, you know, even like a font license all of that is dependent that like there's going to be a third party to kind of regulate, um, you know, what you're going to do. Like if somebody violates like your font license, like font licenses gain their power because of the idea that you could take somebody to court right. with it. Yeah. Right. Um, realistically, that often doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But the thing about smart contracts, like I said, is that, you know, these are contracts that literally will not let you do anything until you follow the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, you know, if you, if you send somebody money and like you break the smart contract rules, that money automatically gets sent back to the original owner. Mm -hmm. So, um, basically with a DAO, a bunch of people could have like a bank, you know, a crypto wallet and they all pull funds in it. And what it is, is that if anybody wants to spend money on something, you know, you could have rules where it's like everybody has to approve it on their phones and then the money gets spent and you're able to kind of track where that money goes. Mm -hmm. And so people have been putting DAOs together in really interesting ways. Um, You know, there was this like, there's this DAO called like party DAO, which was like a bunch of people were just like, dude, these like crypto bros are spending millions of dollars like on these like NFT artworks and stuff. And it just feels kind of like depressing and this weird racket, Mm -hmm. right? It's like rich people buying rich things. And so they're like, we're going to get together and we're just going to pull, you know, a bunch of money together. And they started beating these millionaires at their own Uh game. And they like basically got together on a Friday night. Like the entire thing happened on a Friday (laughs) and they were able to form this like corporate entity because of like with this blockchain technology. Um, And, you know, it, it's it's really it, I, I probably sound like a madman right now like trying to describe <laughs> these things it's really kind of hard to kind of get a sense of it no but there's there's I think, a huge barrier to entry in all this stuff, yeah. and it takes a, a, a ton of research i'm barely hanging on I, because I, from reading yeah. your article about this it pointed me to 
10 other different things to go and learn about and read. And yeah, reading reading about the 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 DAOs thing, I was just wanting to find out, okay, what's an example of this? And they say, oh, the most famous one is called the DAO. And it famously had $55 yeah. million dollars hacked and uh, stolen from And it got hacked, <laughs> and yeah. And I'm like, whoa, okay, this is a huge uh, red flag for thinking about these things. But it's the Wild West. It's just the very, you know? very beginning. Yeah, it's the Wild West because, you know, when you don't have centralized things, you don't have insurance, you don't have protections. Like, you know, not all centralization is bad. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, a bank FD, you know, FDIC insuring your money up to $250,000 is not a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? And you don't get those same protections with cryptocurrency and, and blockchains and mm-hmm. stuff. But, you know, I think if I had to sum it up in a nice way, um, I could use an analogy of a vending machine. Now, Let's say like I want to make some money on the side and I want to buy a vending machine and I just want to plop it down in my neighborhood Um, and people buy drinks, right? Mm -hmm. What do I have to do to get that money? I have to go up to the vending machine. Um, I have to open it up and I have to take the cash out. Um, And how do I know what people want to drink and, you know, what people want in my vending machine? I have to talk to people. And on the other case, if you're a customer of my vending machine, you're kind of at the mercy of my decisions. Mm-hmm. Like I could just, I could be late. I could decide to no longer carry your favorite snacks. And, you know, imagine like a new vending machine in the future where, you know, every time somebody puts a quarter in, um, a part of the quarter gets split up, right? And it's, pretend it's a digital quarter. Mm-hmm. And some of that, some of the sense goes towards ordering new snacks automatically, right? Some of the sense go towards like ordering like, maintaining that things are like cleaned and and maintenance and everything going correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, But also on your end, there's a contract, a smart contract that set where like everybody that's put a quarter in, it remembers and you will have a vote based on how many, how much money you put in on the vending machine on what snacks to have. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even part of the equation anymore. It's basically a vending machine that's able to kind of manage itself. And it has these rules in place and yeah, and, and it has these rules in place and, and because of smart contracts where it's like, okay, whenever a quarter hits you know, hits this account, it's gonna be split up into these ways and it's gonna do these things and people that gave this money have this kind of power. Like you set these kind of rules in place. Um you don't need a boss anymore. Um and because of the and you could also set another rule where it's like everyone that's puts a, a quarter in is technically an owner of this company. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really powerful idea because, you know, if we talk, if we want to get like kind of political, like the last, you know, hundreds of years has really been about this battle between capital and labor. Mm -hmm. And most political problems in the world, it's like there's a disconnect between who has capital and who's providing the labor, Mm -hmm. right? If you could think of like why unions exist and why these things, right? But what's going to be likely now is that in the next century, it's more about platform and participants. And what I mean by that is that we're all kind of at mercy of the platforms that we use and the platforms that we participate in. Like, you know, if, if you're a musician, Spotify changes its rules, right. it's going to affect your mm-hmm. life. Um, you know, if you're on Patreon, it's going to change your life. If you're on my fonts, if Google fonts becomes the most popular way to download fonts, it's going to affect the lives of like font designers. Totally. Right. And so it's, it, you know, this is, this represents a way where, you know, like who gets to own a platform? And now if you imagine like imagine an Uber driver, like the more rides that you give, 
um, the more ownership you have into Uber itself, mm-hmm. like the more Uber stock you get automatically. Um, that seems like a powerful idea. And the thing is, is that that technology is there right now. Like there's a service called Audius, which is like um, Spotify on the blockchain. It's a streaming service and it has 2 million users, mm-hmm. right? But every person, every musician that's uploaded music to it, they get these Audius tokens, like to- cryptocurrency tokens that the company that's, has. Yeah. And the more you upload music to it, the more you have a token where number one, you get to share in kind of like the upside of the company, but two, the tokens have voting powers. So you literally use your tokens on their app to cast votes on the company decisions. Like if they want to make a big major decision, like should we change how much percentage of royalties to give? Um, Should we do that? Uh Everybody that has a token, every participant on the platform has money. And, and, and that's actually what finally attracted me to this because, you know, think the type design industry like these are going to be kind of relevant questions like are eula licenses you know oftentimes are a pdf right they're they're very abstract things and how do you make them more real and at the same time it's like you know how do you you know building a font is expensive and um you know and it takes a lot of effort at the same time like there's companies like monotype and google and adobe that are kind of making decisions that may have an impact on your livelihood totally And so I started thinking about ideas on like, you know, how can we take bits and pieces of these technologies, ignore the crap and start, you know, thinking of ways to, to, to make things like a a more even playing field for type designers and future type designers. Mm -hmm. So I I immediately started thinking a lot about future fonts um, because that's probably the, besides Ono, the uh, other foundry that I have the most kind of experience seen the inner workings of and a huge problem that we have there is people submitting designs and who gets to decide what design um, actually makes it onto the platform so now i immediately start imagining a, a kind of um, decentralized version of future fonts where it's an open platform anyone can post the design and the things that i don't know float to the top in in whatever way are things that people are voting on or putting money behind. And so that immediately removes this painful part of the equation of deciding who gets to be there and who doesn't, you know? So that sounds, um, that sounds really cool. It seems like this decentralized foundry and a lot of the aspects of future fonts, really like things that are in progress and you're kind of deciding um, with actual currency uh, where you want effort to go sounds pretty interesting, but it all seems like a ton of work and a huge project. And is this something that you actually see yourself devoting serious time into in the future? Or is this kind of more just ideas that are floating around your head? You want to write them down and, and kind of make it a, a bit less abstract or are you like, Ready, ready I think, to go yeah, on, I think it's like, basically the technology is there that if I want to execute some of the ideas I have, I can do it. And there was like maybe a thought where like, maybe I start with the typeface that I'm done with after type at Cooper, mm-hmm. that like this becomes like the kind of test case mm-hmm. um, because there's a couple services, but mostly I wanted to get this down, meaning like I kind of like what I do and I kind of like the life that I have. And I think by putting by being like, I'm going to be the guy that builds this. I'm kind of asking to change my life. And I was like, eh, I don't really know if I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. So 
the thing about it is just like ideas that stay in my head, I know they get stale. And so it's sort of like, you know, I want to be that good neighbor where it's like, if I got leftovers, like any, you know, I'll put them out front. Uh So this was like, here's a bunch of ideas. Um, If this is interesting to people, like take it. If you think like, if you think I'm about to like destroy the type design industry, like (laughs) I'll, I'll do some soul searching too, but I'm just going to put this out in the world. And, but basically with, there's a couple of things, right? There's like a few apps out there like mirror and stuff that were, I noticed like, at least in the Chinese speaking world, um, you know, in the Chinese version of Kickstarter, people have started putting typefaces up Mm -hmm. because making a font in Chinese, um, it takes like a lot of, considerably more work than maybe a latin font does Mm -hmm. and so they're really like hey we need you to help us like build this right Mm -hmm. and they've some have been successful because there's actually a real demand for good chinese fonts but there's oftentimes not enough incentives because afterwards it's like okay i'm gonna put a hundred dollars in and maybe in five years i'll get a a license (laughs) at a discount right um and so when i looked at what happened with that john palmer guy and a lot of people doing this, like this, this novelist, Emily Siegel, um, she funded her novel through um, Mirror as well. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the people that contributed to it will also share in like profits and stuff, like when it's successful. And so I had the idea where, you know, if you make the font itself an NFT, I think that's dumb. But you can make anything an NFT. And so why don't you make a license as an NFT? And I looked into it, right? Um, ah, and there's people that are using that are, that are using software licenses as NFTs, and because of things like smart contracts, they've done some interesting things. And the most interesting thing was like secondary markets, where um, you know one of the cool things about an NFT is that because of smart contracts, you could write that like if anybody sells my art in the future, I get 10% of it, and that's pretty standard for a lot of NFT services, and that's how it is in perpetuity. And so because it's you're able to just like track where it is it kind of makes software licenses physical and so people um that have so some companies that have made software licenses and nfts people have been like hey um i don't need this software anymore is anybody willing to trade me for us for this app that i want and they've been trading kind of software right and then the original creators of the software have gotten like a little fee from that transaction mm-hmm. that's happened or you could sell a software license like selling a used font right and so um i had this idea of like why don't i why don't i ask to crowdfund this typeface when i'm done with it because look i gotta master it i gotta pay for font engineering i gotta maybe pay for a legal person to help me with a eula mm-hmm. um i possibly have to pay for other type designers to help me with this because like you know, I'm still learning this and like, I don't want it to be like struggle, mm-hmm. you know, like a struggle font, yeah. you know? And <laughs> I think you, you talk a lot about like the pains of releasing your first font oh, yeah. and stuff. And so I had this idea. It's like, why don't I put it up for a crowdfund? And you know, what you get for now is a token that I create. And in the future, when this font is done, you know, in the next year or whatever, or next five years, I don't know, like famous <laughs> last words, um, you could redeem your token for either a license for it or you can hold on to it um and if the font gets in more demand the token price goes up and you can share in it or um future sales of the font like you will also split into it yeah. and so i had this idea where you know every time a font somebody purchases this font um 
the moment it is, it's not something that like, oh, I tally up and I distribute at the end. But whenever somebody purchases a font, what happens automatically is that 50% goes to me. So sort of like a 50% designer, 50% foundry, mm-hmm. right? But instead of 50% going to like a foundry, um, you know, 10% goes into a treasury and a treasury that I set up that helps fund, you know, helps fund and give scholarships to people that want to do type design. Uh-huh. Um, 20% goes to everybody else that is that all my, like every other type designer that is like sharing in this model and that joins this like DAO. Uh-huh. Um, so I think of an idea of like, imagine if everybody, every type designer in a font foundry got paid anytime a single type designer, you know, made money off their typefaces, right. right? And so, and then there was like another split where it was like, um, you know, to the people that supported me early, they're going to get a side of it. And another split is like, um, what I realized is that like, I could use these tokens and actually reach out to people and say like, Hey, um, I need some help mastering my font. I know you're really good at this. I could give you some money, but I could also give you a concrete promise in future license sales Mm -hmm. that you could easily redeem. And it's not like just a handshake. Mm -hmm. And it's not just me sending you money when I've done the math. It would happen automatically. Mm -hmm. And then that's when it started like kicking it, right? And then I thought like, actually a group of type designers could get together and form a DAO and kind of just do this. And it ends up kind of being a foundry kind of already without you know and you know it's not just type designers only joining this foundry it's like people who are fans of the type designers like by buying more tokens they get kind of membership in mm-hmm. it and like people that hold on to the tokens we could have things where it's like they could vote on what few like here's the thing like you set your own rules right so you could it's like people are afraid that may might be designed by committee and it's like you don't have to leave the it's like as decentralized as you want it to be. So you could say like creative decisions are mine, but I want to have a vote. Who wants to see a condensed weight versus um, a stencil weight mm-hmm. first? And whoever get you know, and token holders have votes on that. They could decide on, you know, what are new, what are the next features. Mm-hmm. Um, they could decide what are things that are more important to them. Like is Cyrillic a bigger need, or is, um, you know, an, you know, is Arabic a bigger right. need? Um, you could also use tokens as bounties, where it's like, hey, um, we need help with we need an arabic type designer to help us make arabic uh, yeah yeah you that know, was they're going to share in future licenses that was something so. i was confused about in your uh article where you say um introduce frictionless bounties for language support and especially in non-latin strips i think that makes a lot of sense i was like well what does frictionless bounties mean but now i t- i kind of understand what you're saying here is that it, it all comes back to basically shared ownership and shared profits yeah, it's like everybody kind of owns his typeface now. That's like had their hand in it. Whether you actually went into the file or you were a fan early on and you used it in a poster and it helped made the font more popular. Like, you know, if if graphic designers like, you know, a lot of times there's this like kind of relationship between graphic designers and type designers where, you know, I think like a few years ago I did this thing using Lucas Sharp's Og that that really got like shared a lot mm-hmm. and ended up on a mm-hmm. lot of mood boards and it helped you know, make Og more popular mm-hmm. um, in some ways. And it, it's it, like, and then, not to take credit for anything, like Og was an amazing typeface, but yeah. it's like things like this happen, right? Totally. And maybe there's a way to, to to acknowledge that. And maybe there's a way to like, kind of like hard code that into place where, you know, when these things happen, 
you know, not only do we encourage it, but we also kind of reward people for it. Well, that. right now, I think the only thing you can really do is to, um, if you're Lucas Sharp in that situation, is to send you um, an edible arrangement is probably the coolest, yeah. the coolest thing that you yeah. could do. Or, you know, we uh, at Ono, we uh, occasionally, um, you know, just reach out to people and, and say thanks, you know, and... Uh, that's better than nothing. But this idea of splitting up money automatically um, in a completely automated way is really, really interesting to me. This idea of a collective of different kind of type designers, possibly, um, working together in kind of a co-op kind of format where they're sharing in the profits in that way is super, super cool. Um, and it's all stuff that's, I guess, possible with traditional currency, um, but such a pain in the ass, you know, is really what yeah. is, there's tons yeah. of fees. And, you know, we do that stuff every month. We send out um, royalties and um, it's a it's a pain point of foundry running for sure. Yeah. Um, on, on Twitter, I was having a discussion with this type designer, Stephen Nixon, um, and he was, he, you know, he made a fair point. It's like you could kind of do all of that already. And I was like, yeah, you can. <laughs> but if it were easy, I think more people would have done so by now. Um, and, you know, there's something to be said, like, you know, it's like with any app, it's like, you know, what's the point of Instagram? I could start up a website and host my images myself. Mm-hmm. I can do that. I don't need this thing. <laughs> but this thing kind of makes it easier in some ways. And it gives me a free time to think about other things. And and so it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, if you remove all the cryptocurrency and the technology, I think the big point is, is that like, how do we think of licenses in a new way? How do we think of how we earn money as type designers? How do we think of like bigger actors? And the reason I mentioned like the, like people forming DAOs to buy NFTs, um, you know, what they were doing was like, people were forming together and instead of like, instead of this, you know, Elon Musk buying this like piece of art, we're going to buy it and we're going to make it free for everybody. Mm -hmm. And just even thinking of like, when I said like, you know, a percentage of every typeface sale automatically goes into a treasury that people could vote how that money's used, mm-hmm. you know, whether to fund scholarships and stuff, you know, we could maybe if, if enough people do this and this treasury grows bigger, you know, um, we, it's like, imagine buying a font from monotype in the future to make, because it's so culturally important that we want to make it free for everyone and we don't want monotype to use mm-hmm. it, <laughs> you know, imagine you know, imagine like, oh, like helping people release typefaces instead of going down that route. Um, and, and you know, all this sounds like kind of really silly because it, it all sounds like, um, you know, an art school project. Um, you know, every like art school project or there's so many college projects where it's like this thing's going to rethink global warming. And it's like, no, it's not. It's a it's a school assignment. But again, this is this is, um, you know, I think the funny thing with cryptocurrency is just like. You know, there's a couple hundred thousand existence. And I think last year, um, you know, they collectively had about 55 million in their account and now they have billions. And, you know, there's only a couple hundred of these little groups around the Internet and they have billions of dollars. And it's just like the thing about cryptocurrency is that like, yeah, that money keeps growing and things keep compounding. And um, it's I think it's a really interesting time. And it's like we don't know where this might go. And again, this might be stupid, but, you know, the guy that wrote an essay, you know, that I, I mentioned John Palmer, mm-hmm. he wanted to take time off to write an essay. Um, he got $20,000 mm-hmm. to, 
to write an essay. And it's like, how many writers do you know got $20,000 to pay mm-hmm. to get an essay? So it is like a new kind of format. Like how many seven people who are good at 3D get $65 million from a single sale? I mean, it's a whole different kind of frontier. It's a whole different kind of ballgame. Well, uh, um, and w- with the decentralized foundry, I think it takes someone who is really serious and passionate about type to come in and figure it out, you know, or or that's exactly kind of what we tried to do with future fonts in the very beginning where, you know, everyone involved was totally um, sincere and, and just genuinely enthusiastic about type. So I think that's kind of, what you bring to this just besides your kind of interest and um kind of enthusiasm for cryptocurrency uh DAOs, everything all these web3 technologies that are working in tandem is at the end of the day you're a kid obsessed with letters you know and and you're still obsessed uh with typography and uh this is just maybe one expression of that we don't want the thing where people are coming in and making this business and, and just trying to turn it into some sort of a racket. It's like, I'm not really trying to build like a big startup that's trying to compete with future fonts. It's like, I'm literally, it's just like, how could we, you know, I think we exist in this field right now where one, you know, type design is amazing because passive income in any sort of design profession is very rare. Mm-hmm. And so it is on one hand, a blessing to have mm-hmm. it. But two, it's like, you know, not everybody gets not everybody really gets kind of the benefit of that. Sometimes there are people that make a significant ton of more money than other people. Mm-hmm. And you could say some of it is because of talent and hard work, but a lot of it is also just kind of circumstantial, you know, who they were at the right time, yeah. the kind of deals they got with certain companies, the kind of opportunities. And it's sort of like, how do we move a couple things around where maybe it's a little bit more equal potentially. And this might not be it. And the thing I brought, I mean, the thing about this is that, this sounds like this whole new business model that's supposed to replace how foundries are. It's not. And, you know, it's, it's supposed to be just like one more additional sure. thing option that you yeah. have. And it's also just like, you don't have to do all these things. Like, you know, a traditional foundry, you know, maybe like, you know, think about a foundry where most of their money comes from like display grotesque or, you know, like, like, you know, workhorse, like typefaces, uh-huh. like grotesque, but maybe they have this really funky, um, you know, display type that they've been working on in the back burner, but it just doesn't make sense to spend enough time on it because they have to do other things. Well, they could say like, well, you know, we're going to put this on a crowdfund. You know, if you, if you're going to help us like pay for it, you know, like you guys get, get to share in the royalties and you guys get to share what to do with it. Um, and you know, it, so a traditional foundry could do something like that. It's, it's more like you could take bits and pieces of it and see where it makes sense for you. Um, and you know, I got the idea of a split where, you know, this artist, um, she sold an NFT, um, but she had a smart contract from now until, you know, the end of time or how long ever the NFT is sold and resold. Mm-hmm. Um, every time there's money, every employee at the, at the gallery from the custodian to the curators mm-hmm. to everybody gets a piece of that. And it's like something you really don't hear about ever. And, and that was kind of this interesting idea. And what also is interesting is copyright. You know, the whole thing about these things being, you know, the reason why an NFT makes a JPEG worth more now is that you could actually trace who made something Mm -hmm. basically. And that's, you know, and who was, you know, it allows you to basically put a track, like it allows you to basically decide like who authored Mm -hmm. what, 
And, you know, what's happening, what's going to happen in music in the next few years was that, like, you know, if all songs are an NFT, um, if you put an hour long mix and you put it up on, you know, SoundCloud or something, you can imagine, like, you know, before it's just an hour long mix of songs that you put together, mm-hmm. but now it's an intelligent kind of mix where it's able to locate every single artist right. in that individual mix and imagine. And if you could locate them, it's not going to take that much work to find a way to compensate mm-hmm. them. And you could even go a level further where for every song on it, all those song samples on it, you know, you could right, have layers right, and layers right, right, of right. people that could do it for perpetuity. So imagine the future where it's like a font, you know, license or a font is an NFT. And then you make a poster um, and that gets sold as, a, as an NFT you know, and it's using this font. The NFT, like, you know, it's like people who, the font creator gets an ups, like gets a share of mm-hmm. that. And so again, these smart contracts working together, it kind of opens up at things. Now, granted, a lot of things kind of have to happen, but, you know, I think, I believe that the, the internet in five years, every single file is going to be an NFT. Um, and that's what I think. And I think that's the route that we're going to, wow. because, um, you know, I think we're working towards a distributed web and I think it's, it's starting to kind of come true. And if I'm wrong, I'll eat my shoe, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll eat it on a, on a, on a web two live stream, like Twitch or something. I'll, I'll I'll eat it on Instagram. I'll eat it on every dinosaur app that I think exists. Um, you know, but like, I think like there's a lot of things that are hopeful where, you know, these things are kind of getting mainstream adoption. And when the reason I brought up music and copyright is that like, Font design and music have a lot in common, right? Where it's like the guy working on a font for like five years feels like working on an album, mm-hmm. right? And the foundry, the foundry feels like a record yeah. label. Um, but one of the cool things about the music industry is that they found out a way how to make covers and remixes of the mm-hmm. thing um, without too many people getting upset. Yeah. There's processes in place like sample clearances and or you could pay someone to remix and stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas of like, if you could make a license in NFT is that number one, you can make special edition licenses of your fonts with you know you can commission another designer be like can you remix my typeface um and and both and both of you automatically get a proportional share of that you know you could have um you know covers and you could say like okay i want to crowdfund this typeface the first 100 licenses are going to get these special like contextual ligatures that the next licenses don't have (laughs) you know and um in some ways that sounds maybe kind of silly Right. And, and that's maybe like kind of the obvious example. But the idea that, you know, licenses can behave intelligently and that you could have special features and you could have like risks of it um, w- without it not being like theft and with everybody making sure to be careful. I think, you know, that's just like the tip of the mm-hmm. iceberg. And I think we're a, a creative enough industry where we could find interesting use cases of it. That isn't like a money play, mm-hmm. you know, I like that, like we could think of homages, revivals in a whole different uh-huh. way. We could think of, um, you know, extra features in, in a whole different mm-hmm. way um, that are useful and whatnot. Yeah. Um, well, there's so much more to talk about there. I really, I mean, first step is just to finish strong in the next week, uh, six weeks of the semester. Yeah. And uh, I wish you a ton of luck in that. I know how stressful kind of the end can be, but. I really encourage you to just go down this path and kind of see what could possibly happen because, um, yeah, yeah, you're, you're clearly stoked on it and, um, it's a really kind of exciting technology. Um, 
particularly like this thing on splits is kind of the big one for me. I think that the thing yeah. I'm still figuring out is because so much of, of Foundry's income is corporate money, you know, kind of what what's yeah. the avenue for getting larger corporate licenses translated into crypto purchases? I, I have no idea what that would be, but I think that's yeah. when it really starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah. A couple of things have to fall into place, um, you know, and that's the part where it's like some of the tech, some of the Lego pieces are missing, mm -hmm. you know, the crowdfunding stuff, that stuff you could do now, but there's stuff in the future where it's like, can you have a smart contract where if you violate your license, the font files automatically right. deleted, you know, can you, um, you know, those things feel kind of like impossible or sound like kind of witchcraft. Um, and I don't really have the answers for that. I don't really have the answers for the corporate license. So I don't think there's a situation in the near future where it really makes sense. But I think it's, um, but I do think that like, you know, interesting use cases will happen. And I do think that like, it's sort of like, there's a lot of things about crypto that are very gross. Um, you know, there's no way around it. There's a lot of things that are very greedy. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that are very useless. And the truth is, is that most NFTs, you know, I believe that 90% of them will lose their well I believe that 90% of them will lose 90% of their value yeah. in a year. I think that part of it is a fad. But I think there's Lego pieces as you said, as you may have articulated that we could take and start building on top of that and in into kind of interesting use cases. And that's the part where I'm like, okay, maybe this is something that I can't pay attention I can pay attention to because in a way the train has been invented and we can't uninvent the train. Um, but we can now try to design railroads that lead to interesting places uh -huh. that lead to a lot more fairness that actually help improve people's lives. And I think that's kind of my stance on it, where it's like the idea of, you know, a public spreadsheet, you know, powering the internet, the idea of digital money, the idea of programming digital money, I don't think that's going to go mm -hmm. away. Um, and there's a lot of things in that space that I don't like about it, but you know, I've been, it's been encouraging to see other people have that same conclusion, but not being discouraged where it's like, there's a lot of things we don't like. So let's try to build things that we do right. like, or let's try to think about things. And maybe I might hear, maybe I might get played back what I just said in the last like 90 minutes <laughs> played back. And I'm like, none of this makes sense. And I sound like a psycho. Um, but I think, and again, this is like really hard to kind of talk about. Right. Um, but you know, I, I would hope in five years that like ignore crypto, ignore all that, all the terminology. I hope like in five to 10 years, we figure out a way where we take a royalty and a font and we're able to do creative things around right. it. And we're able to help our friends and we're able to help the people that have helped us. Right. And that is like really kind of the final takeaway. Of yeah. It. Well, I think that's a beautiful thing. And it's, it's something I think about a lot in a, in a lot of the things that we try and do with the foundry and at the end of the day i do believe that the type community is mostly full of uh great people um well thanks so much for taking the time uh to chat i really appreciate you coming on the podcast man. yeah i mean i, I think you're doing some i mean this podcast is just an incredible service to the type community um you know there's been a couple of type type podcasts over the years like type radio and stuff and it, it's a you know, there's definitely more of it, but I think you bring such a refreshing kind of take on it. 
And I think the people that you've talked to have just been super interesting. So I'm really grateful that you've asked me. And again, even without this, I've wanted to meet you for a long time because I've admired your work for a few years. And without, you know, just getting too gross and, and like talking too much about now, I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> but yeah, super happy to be on here. Super happy to talk to you. Um, yeah. Right on, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So that's it for the interview with Eric Hu. I really appreciate how candid he is and uh, giving caveats that this really isn't a perfect solution, but could lead somewhere in the future. I really hope you'll watch his talk from Typographics last year entitled To All the Fonts I've Loved Before. It's so good and really encapsulates many of the things I love about California's vernacular design. If you're interested, please take a minute to read towards a decentralized autonomous type foundry and learn more about splits, uh, decentralized autonomous organizations, everything that we talked about. We'll wish Eric luck as he finishes out his last term at Type of Grouper and look forward to seeing that final project, which I will hopefully be paying for in Ethereum, maybe. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you have a new project that you want some fresh fonts for, maybe check out onotype.co. That's the only ad in this entire podcast. I put it at the end. I want to be as discreet as possible. Music is provided by Wolfpack, the world's funkiest rhythm section. Thank you for listening and see you next time when we interview Flavia Zimbardi. Adios and vaya con Dios. Mm-hmm.